Welcome to the Lancet Podcast. Richard Lane here on Friday, October the 16th. In this week's extended podcast, we're going to discuss ovarian cancer. We publish a seminar, a research article, and also a short editorial on this topic. But just before we hear from the authors of the ovarian cancer seminar, just a couple of other items to flag up to you. In research, look out for the article concerning the use of paracetamol around the time children are giving paediatric vaccines. We publish a call for papers on cardiology, research from Kenya about prevention of sickle cell disease, and a review that no doubt will be picked up by the media, that is, the non-medical use of cannabis. But this week we're focusing on one of the most devastating cancers around for women, ovarian cancer. I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Maury Markman from the MD Anderson Cancer Centre and hopefully later in the interview we'll be joined by Dr. Brian Hennessy as well. When we think of ovarian cancer, it tends to be one of the cancers that we don't feel particularly optimistic about. We know that quite often it's termed the silent killer. It presents late in women and when it does present, there's not an awful lot of good prognosis out there. How do you summarise some of the accepted knowledge about ovarian cancer, its incidence, its risk factors, and its conventional treatment? Ovarian cancer certainly cannot be considered a, a common malignancy. The overall incidence worldwide is probably somewhere around 1 in 70 women, uh, 1.5% of women will develop uh, ovarian cancer. Obviously, that varies greatly depending upon certain factors, including life expectancy, because it is a, a disease primarily of older women. So, but it's about a 1 in 70 risk, and certainly that's a much lower risk than cancer of the breast or absolutely a cancer of the lung in women or colon, for that matter. It certainly is an important cancer, and what makes ovarian cancer, as, as you've sort of described it, and, and many um, women would describe it as, as this silent killer, is that, in fact, in the vast majority of uh, situations, disease does advance, uh, present in the advanced stages, which means disease is spread throughout the abdominal cavity. About 10% of patients will, in fact, be found to have the disease that is um, truly localized, meaning that the surgery itself or surgery with chemotherapy can be curative. But again, the majority of women will have advanced disease where surgery is certainly a major modality. And in most cases, the first treatment that's employed and then systemic chemotherapy is given. The majority of patients, in fact, when they receive chemotherapy, will respond somewhere between 60 and 80%, maybe even as high as 90% of women will achieve a response to chemotherapy, which means you can measure both shrinkage of tumor masses if they're present. The factors that we measure in the blood, such as CA125, will decrease and often normalize. Radiographic imaging may completely normalize. Years ago, when we used to do what were called second-look laparotomies, where at the end of treatment, one surgeon would go and look again, as many as half of the women would be found to have no visible disease, or even when biopsies were done, one wouldn't find disease. The fundamental problem with all that is that despite all this, in the and, and really wonderful responses and, and no question at all that survival is prolonged today compared to 5, 10, 15 years ago. The facts are that the majority of women still will recur. When the disease does recur, again, although treatment can be effective in prolonging survival, improving quality of life, ultimately in the majority of women with advanced disease, they will die of progression of the cancer and resistant disease. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what's happening at the sort of molecular level, the biological level with ovarian cancer, and also particularly how that, that may relate to some of the risk factors that are at play for the disease? Like many cancers, we don't know the answer to the question. There are a number of hypotheses, probably the, I would say, the most popular hypotheses, and I would argue the one that is uh, most uh, supported by the available data, both at the preclinical level and epidemiologically, meaning, you know, sort of the risk factors that you noted, 
is that we're really dealing with a simple process that relates to damage and repair. I often uh, you know, say to my, my patients or their families, it's really not that difficult to understand that when you think about a young woman who begins to start menstruating and, and has periods every month. What that, of course, is, is the process of ovulation. And ovulation is basically an, you know, an egg being prepared for potential fertilization, and that goes on in generally monthly from the years of, of one's life, 11, 12, 13, all the way up, to... Up to menopause, of course. Up to menopause. So we're, we're, you know, when, you, when you, you know, again, you think about that, okay, there's, a, there's the formulation of, of an egg. There is the release of the egg that is through the, through the membrane. So there's damage, uh, there's inflammation, and then there's repair. And that happens monthly. What we're talking about here is the epithelium. We're talking about the lining cells. And so that is released through this lining, and it's got to be you know, broken down and then, and then repaired, damage and repair, damage repair, monthly for you know, uh, 30, 40 plus years. And that process is incredibly complicated at a biological level and, and incredibly successfully done. It is very rarely as a problem. But of course, as we know now in biological systems, things can go wrong. That is, you know, ultimately something goes wrong in the body's normal systems to uh, correctly repair damage. It goes awry. And over a period of maybe a decade or longer, we have a malignancy. That is a biological hypothesis, what we see. And, and again, the question comes up of what are the risk factors? Those things that reduce the number of ovulatory cycles, such as birth control pills, that a woman might take for five, 10 years will reduce the risk of ovarian cancer on a population basis. Why? Less ovulatory cycles. Conversely, or let me just add to that, because then a woman who's had you know, multiple pregnancies, so every time there's a pregnancy, there's a number of months where there's going to be less ovulatory, a number of you know, months total, you know, five pregnancies versus one pregnancy or no pregnancies, you're, you're going to have reduced ovulatory cycles, and so that's going to have a positive impact potentially. Conversely, uh, lack of pregnancies or uh, infertility, uh, and you know, infertility is uh, obviously a very complicated phenomena, but you know, there can be uh, incessant ovulation and, and multiple ovulatory cycles that are unsuccessful, damage and repair that you're much more often perhaps than even once a month. That has been shown statistically on a population basis to increase the risk of ovarian cancer. Again, the hypothesis that I propose is perfectly consistent with, with this argument. So that is, uh, I think, the, the, the most prevalent uh, argument. And, and when you add to that, and, and, uh, and Dr. Hennessy has uh, just arrived, and you know, I think when we, when we talk about uh, some of the newer therapies uh, being proposed, uh, one of the uh, sort of exciting areas here is strategies in specific women where they have a genetic abnormality in the ability to repair damage. That genetic abnormality may also, to that as an inability to repair damage, may be present in the cancer. And I'm obviously referring now to women with BRC. BRCA1 or BRCA2 abnormalities, that abnormality is present in the cancer. If you have damage and repair, damage and repair occurring, and you have a woman who genetically is not able to repair damage as well as another woman because she has a, this abnormality in BRCA1 and BRCA2. So here again, there's damage that occurs as part of the normal process of ovulation. The repair process is not as effective in a particular woman. She might have an increased risk of ovarian cancer. So again, that's a, that, that goes along with this hypothesis. Can you just comment briefly about the possibilities or potential for screening for this uh, obviously very serious cancer? There is tremendous interest in screening, and, and one could not uh, possibly say anything negative about that goal. The most logical reason for wanting to do it other than you know, hope is the fact of that, as I noted, women with stage 1 disease, and we you know, it's a small percentage of women who fall into that category, maybe 10%, if the fact the disease is found very early where it hasn't spread if it's confined only to the ovary, the overall survival is substantially better than in, in the population that I've described with advanced disease. So again, if we could come up with a way, either with a blood test like CO125 or uh, the extensive work that's currently being done, for example, in Great Britain by Dr. Ian Jacobs and his team to, to look at uh, CO125 
or ultrasounds or CA125 alone. It's a very, very large study, international study that everyone waits the results with uh, great interest. If one could come up with a screening strategy looking for early stage disease, perhaps we would be able on a population basis to find the disease. This is not prevention, of course. This is finding it early. That might work. The problem, of course, with this is that um, it does mean that one is talking about um, screening very large numbers of individuals. Because remember, I saying that this is not a common disease. This is, this is not lung cancer. It's not breast cancer. So it's a lot of people to find a relatively small numbers. It is also far more difficult to, for example, image the pelvis um, ovaries than, for example, the breast. And of course, in contrast to the other very important disease in the pelvic area of the cervix, there is, you know, it's, you, you can't visualize it. You, can, you can't uh, very relatively easily get a biopsy of it. And as I mentioned, you know, the, the ovaries, of course, certainly until a woman becomes menopausal, will be changing every month. How would you summarize best practice for the management of ovarian cancer now? One would say the standard approach is wherever it's possible, a gynecologic oncologist or certainly a specialist in gynecologic cancer surgery should uh, make an attempt at uh, initially at optimal surgical cytoreduction. There's a varied definitions of what optimal surgical cytoreduction means, but in general it's to try to take out as much disease as possible prior to the initiation of chemotherapy. And the standard treatment is generally a, a platinum agent, most time that's carboplatinum, and a taxane, and that's uh, either paclitaxel or docetaxel. There's um, some exciting uh, data actually recently published in The Lancet looking at a what's been called a dose-dense use of paclitaxel. I would just say it's not necessarily dose-dense, it's giving it more frequently, weekly, and that appears to actually improve survival over giving the drug every three weeks. But it basically comes down to a platinum plus a taxane. No evidence adding a third or fourth drug is better than that. There's no evidence that high-dose chemotherapy, dose-intensive platinum makes a difference, although, as I said, scheduling the paclitaxel more frequently does seem to make a difference. Generally, it's six cycles of that approach and then observation, somewhat of a controversial approach, not controversial because of the data, but controversial because the ability to apply it is basically putting platinum, in this case, it's cisplatinum, directly into the peritoneal cavity as opposed to intravenously in women with small volume disease. There have been three randomized trials that have shown a survival advantage from this approach, and the trials are excellent. So the real question there is, well, but how do you do this uh, easily? It's cisplatinum is more toxic than carboplatinum, in addition to which it generally requires a, you know, a catheter that's placed in the abdomen that has more complications associated with it, including bowel obstructions and infections. So one needs to figure out how to use this regional approach perhaps more effectively, perhaps it's figuring out how to use carboplatinum as opposed to cisplatinum. So it's a subset of patients where this may be reasonable. It's also a subset of doctors who may feel comfortable for doing this. But again, three randomized trials have shown a survival advantage with intraperitoneal administration, and, and there's more work that needs to be done in this area. Sorry to sound pessimistic, but just keep our feet on the ground here and remind us, in terms of the epidemiological data, ultimately women who are treated in this way, combination of surgery and systemic therapy, are likely to have a prognosis of what in the main? Well, you know, again, I, I think this is, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, there has been so much negative statement. So a woman with advanced disease today, stage 2 disease, disease widespread in the peritoneal cavity, she undergoes surgery. Let's make the assumption for this particular uh, data, I'm going to say, that the surgeon is able to make get the smallest volume disease less than a centimeter. So she's still got a lot of disease, I mean, it, but, but it's less than a centimeter. She then gets chemotherapy. Her median life expectancy today is longer than five years. She's advanced disease at diagnosis, has a surgery, gets chemotherapy, median survival is longer than five years. So 
and I didn't say cure, I, uh, because again, the majority of these women still will ultimately die of disease, but the median survival is longer than five years. And if that woman is not able to have small volume disease at the end of surgery, or she has too much disease and she can't be operated, even there, her median survival now is approaching three years. And, and that has, you know, over the years, uh, that time has increased. So again, cure remains elusive for most patients, and we're waiting for new therapies. But extending survival of, I would argue, reasonable quality uh, is um, certainly been um, achieved and is improving. I guess one can say, are you looking at the glass half empty or glass half full? I'm saying we're looking at the glass half full, and it's getting fuller. My name is Brian Hennessy. I'm an assistant professor in MD Anderson Cancer Center with the Departments of Gynecologic Medical Oncology and Systems Biology in the Division of Cancer Medicine. The most exciting move at the moment is towards targeted therapies, I guess, um, because as Dr. Markman said earlier, we've reached a plateau with cytotoxic chemotherapies. And there's a, a um, rapid advances right now in terms of understanding of the molecular pathogenesis of ovarian cancer and the different subtypes of ovarian cancer. And moves are, are um, towards therapies that target processes that are being implicated in ovarian carcinogenesis. So right now, my opinion, the two targeted therapies that are showing most promise and that are most likely to yield advances in, in, in treatment and improvements in outcome of women with ovarian cancer are vascular targeted therapies and, and PARP inhibitors. So I'll start with vascular targeted therapies. Vascular targeted therapies are therapies that, that target blood vessels, the formation of blood vessels by tumors by ovarian cancers. The most well-known at the moment is, is a Vastin or Bevacizumab, which is an antibody that is developed against a protein called VEGF, which ovarian cancer cells use to make blood vessels. And it's shown particular promise in ovarian cancer in phase two clinical trials. And right now, phase three clinical trials are ongoing in the US and Europe. Like I said, the phase two, the early phase clinical trials showed particular promise. So there's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of expectation for the agent, for the results of the phase three clinical trials. Are any of these novel agents actually out there getting licenses and being used in clinical practice? Or are we still at the final research stages? So the vascular targeted therapies are already established in clinical practice and in the U.S. approved by the, the FDA for use in other cancer types. Um, Avastin is approved for use in colon cancer, breast cancer, and lung cancer already. Available in other cancer types, not yet part of standard care for ovarian cancer. Do you think we're now at a very exciting time for the management of ovarian cancer, given that we have reached the plateau with conventional treatment? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think in the last five years, we've We've seen the beginning of a new era that's going to yield dramatic improvements in, in outcomes for women with ovarian cancer. And, and part of that is the rapid improvements that we're all participating in, in in terms of understanding of the molecular biology of ovarian cancer and, and the improvements and drives toward personalized or targeted therapies that, that that's yielding. Right now, ovarian cancer is one of the four cancer types being focused on by a movement which is called TCGA. It's the Cancer Genome Atlas, and that's a, a large molecular study that is aimed at dissecting the complete molecular biology of ovarian cancer, looking at genes, looking at mRNAs, looking at proteins. And I think that moves like that, large-scale sort of um, cross-institutional and, and international collaborations are, are going to yield further improvements in understanding of ovarian cancer and further improvements in our ability to, to treat ovarian cancer with new targeted agents like Avastin and like these new PARP inhibitors such as Olaparib.
Dr. Markman, how would you just briefly summarize where we are and, uh, and where you think we're going with the management of ovarian cancer? What one can say about the management of ovarian cancer is that we have made improvements. They've been small steps. But I do believe that uh, perhaps of all of the malignancies out there, and obviously I'm perhaps a little biased because I've spent 25 years working in the area of ovarian cancer, I think you could say the revolution in understanding the biology of malignancy in general is going to transform the management of ovarian cancer. Dr. Hennessy certainly did mention the work that's going on with the PARP inhibitors, uh, but that's just one example. There are, there are multiple pathways that we are beginning to understand. It is absolutely true that we haven't been able to transform that understanding into new therapies, but as we really do begin to categorize the cancers more, uh, well, traditionally, of course, has been morphology, but really, um, you know, this sort of the systems biology approach, look at the particular pathways that are relevant. I think finding uh, the drug that will be relevant for the individual molecular abnormalities has the potential of really revolutionizing our treatment. I would add that that revolution may not be cure, but it may be control, so that we may be able to control the growth of the cancer for years or decades and not actually ever truly eliminate it. That's what I see in the future. Terrific. Well, it's been great talking to you both. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. It's our pleasure. Well, many thanks to Maury Markman and Brian Hennessy from the Emily Anderson Cancer Center in the United States. See you next week.